I'm here today with Reggie Babhay III, the founder of creative venture studio Orza and one of the great minds behind Shanghai's nightlife scene in the mid to late 2010s. Reggie is a Burmese-born Australian creative entrepreneur living in Melbourne with an incredible catalogue of entrepreneurial pursuits in Asia. After a spontaneous decision to work in Shanghai as a music producer in 2006, Reggie saw an opportunity to bring a different type of music and nightlife culture to China's youth. He kickstarted his 13-year stint in Shanghai with the groundbreaking promotions company STD and eventually gave birth to one of Shanghai's legendary underground hotspots, Arkham. Reggie's clout is about injecting diversity into Shanghai's creative scene through music. He brought in underground music influences from Australia and elsewhere in the world and shaped foster the evolution and identity of Shanghai's youth culture. We talk about Reggie's personal creative inspirations, take a nostalgic walk back to 2015 Shanghai, and his advice on how Australian creatives should think about collaborating with and leveraging Asia today. Welcome to Clout Asia, where we ask Australians to take us on their journey to Asia capability by choosing a food, song, show, and person that captures the essence of their experience to help us understand what being an Uzi with clout is all about. I'm Lucy Du, and here is Reggie Barpay III. Welcome, Reggie. It's so great to have you on Clout Asia. Thanks, Lucy. It's lovely to be here. It's been a while. We did connect when you moved back to Australia. We both overlapped in Shanghai. You have Mm. an incredible career in Shanghai, which I'll let you talk a little bit more about. Mm. But for friends of mine who are listening, I was a big fan of Arcade, Arkham, the bands that you brought over and the artists through STD as well. It was very exciting. It's great to hear more about your Asia journey and some of the projects that you're working on at the moment. It's so cool to be able to be in Australia, talk about some of those experiences with someone from Australia because having left China a few years ago, I feel sometimes distant. It's almost like a dream, but I'm really glad you had a good time in those places. Before we head into the Shanghai part, I want to start right at the very beginning, perhaps. Your family is Burmese, Australian, that you grew up in Australia from a young age. I was born in Myanmar. I was born in Yango. My mum is Burmese Chinese. My dad is Burmese with a little bit of English. I lived in Burma for, for four years. And then I moved to India for a year when I was four. And then when I was five, our family immigrated to Australia, to Brisbane for the first year. And I remember those were pretty difficult day. Like I couldn't speak any English and took a little time to integrate. And then after that, we moved to Rockhampton. So a lot of my upbringing was actually in central Queensland, going through primary school and high school in Rocky before coming back to Brisbane. How was it being a migrant kid in Rockhampton in the 90s? To be honest, I think I was very lucky that I had a cool group of friends that were just awesome people. Rocky really had a great sense of community. It it only has a population of 50,000 people, but it did feel very isolated and there weren't very many other Asian families Definitely not many Burmese families, although there were a few. Growing up as a young Asian immigrant in Rockhampton, 
it just felt very lonely sometimes. Like you were trying to just fit in and survive and just try and integrate with society. I was very lucky to have such good friends and people around me, but it always felt like I wasn't sure where I belonged growing up in Rocky. And maybe that kind of led me to a lot of my travels later in life. You spent 13 years in Shanghai. When did you first move? What Mm -hmm. made you decide to move to China? So to fast forward a little bit, I went to study international business and I did it for two years. It just wasn't really my thing. I was studying international business, but I was really obsessed with music. And so after two years, I dropped out and to clear my head, I was like, okay, I'm going to Japan for a year. And I spent a year there, which was really eye-opening for me. For the first time, I felt like when I was in Japan and Tokyo, I didn't feel like a minority and I was just so overwhelmed by all the culture that Japan has to offer. I got into the conservatorium while I was in Japan at Griffith in Brisbane. So I came back and studied there for a bit. But then about, again, two years into my degree, I got an opportunity from a friend of mine that used to live in Japan that now set up a TV studio in Shanghai saying, hey, we need a music producer and composer and sound engineer. Would you be interested to come? So I decided to do that. And I made my parents very (laughs) unhappy, very conservative, typical Asian parents. Dad's side and my mom's side are successful business people. I made it over there. And that's where I started my journey in Shanghai as this kid that really didn't wait about China, just took a job on a whim, landed a few weeks later, and figured a lot of stuff once I got there. What year was this? This is 2006. So first year was working at this company. I was literally working 16 hours a day, seven days a week, just in the studio, making music, recording things. The music was being used for TV shows, documentary stuff. And I was working like a dog. And then one of my friend, colleagues, you need to the studio. And he's like, there's this party I take you to and you should check it out. So he took me to this party and it was a pretty little bar, like underground. It's called C's Bar. Did you ever go there? Yes, I did. My friend used to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was my first taste of some sense of music culture that resonated with me. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. At that time in Shanghai, there was really nothing else. There was this party that happened once a month. All the clubs were like very kind of Chinese, drinking green tea and whiskey. It really lacked that sort of underground culture, which I identified a lot too. So once I saw a glimpse of that, I was like, wow, what can I contribute to this culture? What can I contribute to this community and that's what sort of led me to starting std which (laughs) was literally a tongue-in-cheek stupid party name it was so stupid it literally just came over a couple of beers and then first event our format was that we wanted to play a band this band that i really liked called muscle snog and then afterwards put on djs and so the place fits maybe like you know 100 people and the first night i remember after promoting it for two weeks, there was a hundred people inside the venue, maybe like another hundred people outside of the venue. It was like a street party. And at that time I was I was handing out condoms, just again tongue tongue in cheek at TV, <laughs> handing out condoms to all the people that were coming in buying tickets. And I realized at that moment, like, wow, this feels pretty special and felt really nice to found the community that I wanted to be a part of, but also contribute towards it. The show was amazing and it really kicked off, I guess, the next 10 of events and nightlife and promotions. I want to tell folks who weren't 
in Shanghai or may not have heard of STD, some of the acts mm-hmm. that you brought, you know, including Pusha T, Anderson Pack, Tokyo Monster, the presets, only a very small handful of some of the many big names that you are able to bring to Shanghai, which I think is really unique. And you also ran your first bar, Arcade, the video game bar. Mm-hmm. And of course, the all-famous underground Arkham, which I have to say every person, um, every expat in Shanghai probably has heard of, and <laughs> if not, has been to many times. It's so nice to look back on those days. After that first gig at Logo, we would do parties every two weeks. And before long, we were not just doing Shanghai bands, but bands from around China through Shanghai. And then shortly after that, I booked my first international DJ to bring to Shanghai. And things started to snowball. From there, we started booking more shows. That brought a lot of attention from multinational brands that really were interested in this sort of youth culture audience that we were fostering and and nurturing and I guess like empowering as well. Mm. We just tried to bring as much music and diversity, punk bands to Square Pusher, like underground electronic music to Peaches, which is just like really eccentric live shows. Just because we felt that Shanghai deserved it, Shanghai deserved to witness the variety of culture and music from around the world. Arkham, I think that was probably my biggest accomplishment in China. It took a long time for us to find the right venue. And we found this amazing underground feels bunker warehouse, you could say, right next to the Chinese military barracks mm-hmm, <laughs> on mm-hmm. Ulubu Nambu. In the very, very early conversations, when we came up with the name ST, we were daydreaming about creating a venue like Factory back in Manchester, where New Order and Joy Division came out of. And when we opened Arkham, it really felt like that story had come full circle. And we were like, great, this is it. This is where we can build a home for our community. And we were able to just have a lot of fun with a lot of people and a lot of music. My first gig that I remember going to Arkham was Keely from Block Party. He did a DJ set. Oh, yeah. Nice. I want to go back to the Asian youth culture being an Australian youth, yes, at the time still are, what were some of the differences that you saw between the culture in Shanghai, especially in the music scene, and compared with growing up, you nominated Nine Inch Nails for your music? Tell us more. The reason I chose Nails and specifically Trent Reznor was when I found out that Trent Reznor was the mastermind behind the music and behind Nine Inch Nails, it was really inspirational moment for me to know that one person could do so much. Mm-hmm. And so that really gave me a lot of confidence to start making music by myself and set me on a trajectory of music production. But to answer your question about the differences between Chinese youth culture or Australian youth culture, I was really lucky to witness a very important period of the evolution of Chinese youth culture. I arrived to six and I left in 2019. And when I first arrived and we first did those TD shows, those first gigs, I remember like these Chinese kids coming to shows just completely wide-eyed, looking at this punk band, listening to these DJs, this drinking culture around it, mingling, a lot of expats there. So they were making international friends for the first time. And 
you could see just this like fascination, but that fascination and their understanding of that culture and ingesting it and then starting to express it through themselves happened so quickly, such a fast evolution. And I think that part of that came down also to pair with emergence of social media, Instagram, things like that. Those Chinese kids were just listening to all this music. They would come to the next show. They've listened to all the albums from the previous artists that we set, that we brought, and then all the music for the next artist that we were booking. And it was really this crazy exploration of culture and sharing culture, but then sizing that in their own way and expressing it in their own fashion. With China, there's obviously limitations to those expressions as well. I feel like we were there in a period where we were trying to find out what those ceilings were because you can't always say things as freely as you can in Australia. So it was almost finding this safe space that they could explore and express themselves. I think fashion is a huge part of it as well. Like we've talked a lot about music, but fashion was something that I found a lot of Chinese kids could be very feel very liberal about and express freely. I was able to witness this evolution and that evolution was just happening at such a rapid speed as consumption of content and culture and then synthesizing it to make it their own, which I think if I go to Shanghai now, it'll feel a lot more Chinese than maybe the early days of STD where there was a lot of imported culture from expats Mm. and things like that. I think when you do have certain limitations and restrictions and boundaries, whatever that might be, there's very unique ways in which you express your creativity. And some of those expressions maybe tend to be a bit narrower and deeper as well, as opposed to a broader approach. And I think like on the music level, there were limited bands and limited drummers, for example, that played in bands. So because of that, it also created a really interesting dynamic between the music that was coming out of Shanghai. So you would have a band that had a surfer rock guitarist They couldn't find a drummer that was rock and roll, let's say. So they had to find a jazz drummer. And then there was also a synth player. And because it was so diverse, it just came out with some some really cool, interesting music that was formulated by the limitations of the environment, which I think is always really neat because it tends to identify with that culture and those limitations at that, that time. For sure. I want you to tell us a bit about your current ventures and Mm -hmm. the current projects you're working on. I think it's really exciting. You've recently founded and created a creative venture studio called Orza. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. So at the end of last year, I closed down my creative production agency called Club Media. And at Club Media, I was doing a lot of work in music and video production, music direction. And when I closed down Club Media, I spent the beginning of the year trying to figure out how I want to operate moving forward. I was doing a lot of different projects and applying myself in different capacities and collaborating with people. So also is essentially uh, a way for me to collaborate with others and incubate ideas, kind of like a personal holding company on how I can interact on these projects. Our focus with Orza is really at the intersect of emerging tech, entertainment, digital culture. The two main projects that I'm focusing on at the moment, the first one is called Alias. So Alias is, I guess, an extension of the work that I was doing at Club Media around virtual humans. We created photorealistic 
virtual humans made with game. And we found like some pretty like success through that, having collaborated with Puma and Adidas doing global campaigns to use virtual humans. But what we found was that it was really difficult to produce the content. It was expensive, it was time consuming and needed a high degree of expertise. But I was just fascinated with the dice. Like there's something here that needs to be explored further. So at the beginning of the year, I started researching a bit more into pseudonymity and virtual identity, especially as we see a lot of younger audiences spend more time in virtual spaces. Even now, we kind of already have a LinkedIn profile, you have your Instagram profile, you have your Facebook, and you can use it in different ways. And I was wondering if that could be expressed virtual self. I started looking into different technologies that could be adopted for people to craft an identity like a virtual avatar, like a 3D avatar, and then be able to animate it so you can create content. You can join a live uh, Zoom call or even take it into a gaming environment. So all of a sudden, it's not just a profile. It becomes this persistent identity that you can cultivate. And the second project is a gaming studio that's looking to make games in Fortnite UEFN. It's a lot easier to explain. <laughs> <laughs> I love the first one. I really <laughs> like Alias. And when we talked about it just before we started the show, you mentioned it's really about democratizing the creative industry and in so many ways creating this virtual alias and being able to create this unique identity online that allows you to actually better express your opinions and that comes from a lot of the research that you've done right i think there was like a penny drop moment last year i was at i think it might have been big sound where i was on a panel I remember there was a Q&A at the end of the panel and this young lady put a hand up and she was like, this is exactly what I've been looking for. I have a disability. I'm very fearful to show that disability in a public setting, but I'm a singer and I really want to perform. And I think having a virtual avatar will be picked for me because I can get the confidence to be able to perform. And admittedly, when I started going down the route of virtual humans, it was to work with brand and music. But then I realized Maybe there's a more important social impact that these virtual avatars could have. There is a lot of research that's been done in pseudonymity in virtual spaces like Reddit, for example. And so what the research included that when people have a pseudonymous profile, their participation in online spaces and interactions greatly increases. So as an example, if there's a virtual classroom and a virtual teacher and all the students have an avatar, they see that more students are likely to participate in questions. We also see with students' profiles, the level of creative output greatly increases. And that's consistent with our popular culture, Daft Punk, Bangie, Snoop Dogg. These are huge, iconic people. And I think there's a liberating factor when you are able to divorce your creative output persona with maybe your physical persona that was really interesting but then we also saw that in social media and things like that there is rampant toxicity online bullying discrimination and that's a lot of it's tied to your physical identity and so again when you adopt you know, identity we see levels of discrimination reduced online anxiety is reduced and so that's really what i've been doing with alias and it's been a bit of a slog and a lot to learn, but we're very close to putting something out in public for people to start testing in the next month or so. Yeah. That's super exciting. I think in a country like China or even other parts of Asia, 
where there are certain restrictions, there's a lot more rules, it's a different governance system for young people or anyone, that level of anonymity is really important and crucial in privacy and being able to share and express opinions in a way that protects you. Do you find the same relevance for something like this in Australia or outside of Asia? Yeah, definitely. So in recent studies, the overwhelming majority of Gen Z want to remain anonymous. And if you look at some of the more popular trending social media apps tend to offer a level of anonymity. And a lot of it comes down to a few things. One we've talked about, which is toxicity and bullying and things like that. People just don't want to put up with it, especially at such a young age. They want to sort of stay away from those sort of confrontations. But then also how our data is being used by big tech. So my generation, the millennials, we were the first to have adopt Facebook and Instagram and, and apps like that. And we kind of just gave our content away to these big tech companies. And now it's starting to surface over the years just how nefarious they've been with our data. All of this is, has been kind of, yeah, I mean, put all over the news that it's now in front of Gen Z and younger. They've now witnessed, you know, just how bad that they these people have been. Again, they want to be a little bit more protective of their data, their privacy. And I think the virtual avatar idea also plays into how a lot of today's youth are spending more time in gaming as well. I think gaming industry has just absorbed everything on the world, in the planet, everything from e-commerce to film and TV, to mm. music, and also social interaction. A lot of younger kids don't go to Facebook to hang out. They don't go to Instagram to hang out. They hang out in Roblox. They hang out in Fortnite. Mm. So really, I think like Alias is just a way to take that idea of social interactions in gaming, but then to pull it into the physical world and extend to the physical world. Your other project you mentioned is related to the gaming aspect. Melbourne in particular, I think, has a pretty strong gaming industry from what I know in Australia. How do you see that compared with Asia or how do you see Australia's role in contributing to what you're doing in the creative industry or in the gaming space? Yeah, I think Australia should be really proud of its indie game developers in particular. They really punch above their weight. And some of the releases that have come from very small studios out of Melbourne, but also other parts of Australia. But I guess Melbourne is the hub of gaming in Australia. Overall, we've definitely punched above our weight. And I think in, in terms of Asia, a lot of artists, concept artists and studios are now starting to prop up in China in particular just because the quality is so high in terms of the artwork that's being pushed out there. And you know, for me, I'd love to find ways to connect those threads a little bit more, not just with gaming, but I think overall just the creative industries. One thing I've noticed coming back to Australia in 2020 is how isolated it feels here still. I've been out of Australia at that point for a long time. And I definitely think there are people and organizations trying to strengthen those bonds. But I think in the creative industry, there's so much room collaboration. And we, I would love to see more of that incentivized. Indonesia, for example, I spent four months there. It's got such an awesome creative industry and creative mind, artistic minds. 
And we, as Australians, should definitely be looking to our neighbours in the East to collaborate with, work with, Mm -hmm. and especially as their industries, their economies and their middle classes just started to grow and prosper. It's something we can, as for our artists and creative communities in Australia, we can also leverage that and play a role as they continue to grow their industries over there as well. What did Indonesia do well in that sense? How do you see Australia to perhaps think about collaborating more and engaging with Asia more in that sense? The first thing is audience. We in the music industry have, creative industries in general, have remained geographically isolated. But just across the ocean, we have one of the biggest countries in the world, population-wise, in Indonesia, I think it's the third largest population. It is maturing very quickly. It has a booming middle class. So first of all, there's an audience there. There's a market that we can uh, offer our music to. We can take our artists over there. The work that I was doing when I was at 88 Rising was part of that, is to help nurture and foster these young Asian creatives. I think Rich Brian, which is an artist that was on 88 Rising, is a great example of that. The 16-year-old rapper making it on youtube and then we signed him and now he's been number one on billboard and he's an indonesian kid like he literally grew up in indonesia and so as we see the rise of asia the continuing rise and asia is a very very big beast obviously like indonesia is just one part of that but also there's india which is doing extraordinarily well we've already successes in korea also in china in the last 10 years For some reason, I still feel Australia is just not tapping into that opportunity. Hmm. We have an amazing foundation of talented Asian Australians as well. I do think that the coming generations will probably be instrumental in building those bridges between Australia and Asia as as more opportunities arise for them. I I would say definitely it's been limited. There's been that bamboo ceiling over the last 20 years or so. But I do think that's going to break. And I do think Asian Australians have the experience of having to manage those two sides of culture in a way that will be really important in strengthening those bonds, creating opportunities and building those bridges to prosper upon. You've worked a lot with multinational brands, you know, foreign brands whilst you're in Asia. What is maybe one or two things that companies, Australian brands or other foreign brands should be thinking about when wanting to access and you know, expand in markets like Indonesia? I think authenticity. One thing that we need to be mindful of is not tokenizing Asia or tokenizing minorities because that can just seem insincere and that is not a good step forward. I think if anything that it could be a step backwards. So when entering these markets, it's really about understanding the market is important. If it's the first time you're entering a market to have some local guidance, whether it's a partner or an agency that can give you that valuable insights on how to enter the market, but then find a way to add value to that community or whichever part of the industry that you're exploring. There's definitely opportunities there. The best brands that I've worked with in China and I've worked with everything from Sprite to Adidas to Converse to Louis Vuitton. They have this team where somebody on the team, usually it's the creative, is bringing creative ideas maybe from on a global level, but then it's put through the filter of really creative people locally or domestically as well. So you get this organic messaging that comes through the brands. I think that's really critical. Um, 
be honest, coming back to Australia, one thing that I've noticed is there is not enough brands speaking to Asian Australians, like directly to them. I feel like there's a sleeping giant in Australia, and that's the larger Asian Australian communities. We have a huge population in Australia that just flies under the radar, and maybe that's how we feel comfortable a lot of the time. But I think that there is a mass population that want to be recognized, want to share our cultures and be spoken to in a very respectful, direct way, instead of just being like, hey, there's just another Asian person in this TV commercial to tick a box. You know what I mean? If brands speak with guidance and, and having the right intentions, I think you could activate a huge market, even just within Australia. I agree. AWZA, A-W-Z-A, is not an acronym like STD. (laughs) Where did the name come from? (laughs) On STD, I just want to mention, we actually just called it STD, but at the time, no publications would put us in their street presses. So we had to change the name and write it out full as sonically transmitted disease, which we just made up so they would publish it. Uh, but yeah, Oza, the full word is Ozati, and that's a Burmese fruit. That's the Burmese name for custard apple. It's just a fruit I really like. I just really like the look of the word. I've always wanted to find a way to implement a little bit of my Burmese heritage in the things that I do. So I wanted to put it into my company name and I just really like the look of Orza. I like a good custard apple. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's such an exciting venture and I'm really looking forward to staying across all of your projects, both the current and upcoming ones. Um, I want to jump Finally, to (laughs) your last two nominations before we wrap up, Mm -hmm. for movie, you have picked Spider-Verse. Why did you pick this particular movie? I've always been a huge fan of animation since I was a kid. And I think the work I was doing at Club Media, we were doing a lot of streaming and working with virtual avatars and things. And when I first watched Into the Spider-Verse, I was really just blown away by the technical and creative expertise was it almost just completely reinvented how animation could look in my eyes Um, up to that point we were getting very familiar with pixar and dreamworks uh, these bubbly characters very polished very shiny and then into the spider verse maybe again it just resonates to me on a personal level but it was rough and it had elements of 3D, it had elements of 2D. It felt like a, a comic book that had come to life. It's really inspiring, the art style itself as well. And that art style is becoming more popularized. And it's also something that we're looking to implement in some of the avatars that we're creating for Alias. Across the Spider-Verse was a big inspiration for that. I love it. And finally, for person, you have mm-hmm. nominated Icelandic singer-songwriter Bjork. Mm-hmm. Bjork is one of my heroes, I would say. I think growing up in the 90s, listening to a lot of metal and alternative rock, she was just this fearless, ultra-talented, unique personality that just stood out from everything else. I was always attracted to her music and I know she's not Asian, but she looks Asian. But it was also something that I just looked up to as like someone of minority that was just crushing it and just completely fearless and courageous. And throughout the years, she has this curatorial ability to find the most wicked, talented people 
pull them together for her projects. And I found that really inspirational, especially as a creative director as well. She just reinvents herself. She does just amazing music time after time. It never sounds too samesy. Obviously, she's got a very distinct voice, but always pushing the boundaries of what's possible, not just on a music level, but through technology, through the instruments she uses, the way she records, the music videos. She has been and I think always will be just one of my greatest heroes. What a great way to end. What's your favourite Bjork song if you could choose only one? I'd probably pick Yoga. I loved it so much I did a remix of it. (laughs) Amazing. Um, Maybe that's the song that we're going to end the show with. Thank you so much, Reggie, for being on the show. So excited to keep following what's been happening. So great of all the contributions that you and your team made in Shanghai. It definitely made my personal Shanghai nightlife very enjoyable. Uh, Thanks for being on the show. You're 100% completely welcome. It's always lovely to catch up and thanks for inviting me onto the podcast and yeah for anyone that's listening that ever wants to just have a chat works in the creative industries works in emerging tech i'm really excited to meet other asian australians or just australians in general and find more people to collaborate with and join the journey don't forget you can subscribe to cloud asia on apple podcasts spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts You can also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn as Clout Asia. Thank you for listening. See you next time.